Good evening. I will be reading Deuteronomy 7, verses 8 through 10. Sorry, 7 through 10. The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations. For you, the, you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you and he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. That is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. But he does not hesitate to punish and destroy those who reject him. I've got Isaiah 54, 7 through 9. For a brief moment, I abandoned you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never come again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed.
your son and about the love of your son and about the love that you gave to us in your son. I ask that for everyone here tonight, God, that um, they leave this place feeling a bit more of the love of you, God, um, that they leave this place um, feeling maybe even transformed by your word, God. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so story time with Noah. <laughs> um, when I was uh, probably around nine or ten years old, uh, I was a lot. Yeah, yeah, not that long ago, not that long ago. <laughs> uh, when I was about nine or ten years old, I was uh, very active in uh, uh, what's called um, today uh, like Muay Thai kickboxing, that type of thing. We just called it karate back then, but um, uh, I was very active as a kid and did a bunch of katas and karates and worked my way all the way up to a black belt, um, all the way to basically uh, into my teenage years and things of that nature. And it was a big, big opportunity for me to be able to be socialized and things of that nature. Uh, we were homeschooled all my life, so being able to uh, get out and be in a gym with a bunch of other people um, was always a good thing for anyone that's homeschooled. If, you're, if you've been homeschooled, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> but um, as I was uh, at... Uh, this karate place, um, I happened to uh, have probably some of the few first crushes that one would have as someone um, there. And I remember this in particular because I kept journals quite for, like heavily during my whole younger life. And if you were to go back to my first journal in like the six, seven, eight, nine, nine, well, sorry, I was saying that wrong. It, when I was six, seven, eight, and nine, um, you will find that a lot of my journal is filled with these romantic idealisms of whoever I had to crush on at that period of life. I was uh, not one of these boys that was like, oh, girls are cooties, that's, that's not a good thing, you know, like, I, I don't want to be as far away from that as possible. I was one of those that was like, ooh, pretty. Uh, <laughs> and happened to uh, write a lot about that in my journals. It's uh, kind of embarrassing to go back and read those now. But um, there was a girl that I had a crush on that went to karate um, with me, and I had this deep infatuation with her as a nine-year-old. Um, and uh, I, at some point, got up and worked up the courage to one day, at the beginning of karate class, to profess my love to her uh, in front of uh, everyone. <laughs> um, it wasn't really a professing, it was more of a question. Uh, she came into karate and I had worked up the courage and I finally was like, I gotta do it, I gotta do it. And so she came in and I asked, do you love me? <laughs> Very uh, awkwardly. And uh, surprisingly, she said yes, which was very sweet. Um, and then we didn't do anything. <laughs> we uh, uh, pretended like it never happened. And for the next five years, I took karate there. It never came up again. <laughs> and it's very funny because for me, um, the reason it never came up again was we didn't really know what to do. Uh, we, I was super scared and I didn't know what 
what happens next? I was a nine-year-old. Like, what, what do you do once the person that you asked, do you love me, says yes? Like, what's the next step? I don't know. Um, and so by the time it was like 13, 14, 15, things just got weirder from there, hitting you know puberty and all that. And it just became one of those things where she was always there in class. And I ended up becoming really good friends with um, her brother. But uh, her, like, I'm still to this day left with that as my story of her. Um, and it's kind of funny. Um, the reason I bring that story up, and the reason that's my opener, is I feel like in a huge way, uh, that story has become central to how I think about Christianity. Um, central to the way that church has felt to me for most of my life. And that is, does God love me? Yes. And then nothing happens. What I mean by that is that in some sense, I hear the words, does God love, well, I hear the words, God loves you all the time. It's written on billboards. It's written on like church slogans. It's like the mottos for a lot of the services that you hear. And yet, for the most part, most of my life, I can look at and say, while they said yes all the time to the question, does God love you, nothing really changed in my life. You know, nothing felt different. Um, it didn't feel like I had a sense of love, even. Um, it just felt like words that someone said, yes, I love you, but then nothing good came of that. And that's a question that I think more and more, I think we all wrestle with a lot today. I've seen this a lot in the way that uh, churches focus on community a lot. The push right now, if you go to any church, is get in a community group, get in a small group. And really what I think underneath the underlying thing there is we know that you need love, we know that you need care, and we want to put you in a group so that you can get that. Because for whatever reason, when we say the words Jesus love you from a pulpit, they're not hitting. And we need you to be in this small group this place of community with other people so that that can land finally. And as I've been in groups of that nature, I've been in churches, a lot of different churches over my years, some of those have been actually really successful. I've been in some small groups that have really been able to communicate love. But something that's driven me time and time again is, well, why, why is it that small groups are the answer to a thing that seems to be something we get from God more so than from people. Like, if the whole point of Christianity and the whole reason God sent his son Jesus is because uh, God loves you, then why is it that I'm not being satisfied with those words? Why are those words just a yes without any real feelings of change? And so what I want to do today in this sermon is hopefully alter that, is to hopefully give you a way forward to feeling that if you don't. Maybe you already do, and then this sermon is redundant. If you do, I'm really happy for you. But I'll wager a guess that some of you don't feel that all the time. Or maybe you just need reminded of that, reminded of the love of God. And in the season of Advent, Advent is a time where we really focus on the idea of there being 
it's being okay to admit that sometimes we don't feel the things that we need to feel. We don't understand the things we need to understand. We don't process the things we need to process. Advent is a time where you admit that you are in deep yearning and longing. And as I look at my culture, as I look around me at just how culture operates right now, I think this is one of the most important issues we can talk about. Um, one of the powerful things that I've been kind of mulling over in my brain a lot is um, the great poet Taylor Swift. <laughs> Taylor Swift, uh, I'm not really a Swifty, like a fan of Taylor Swift, but every now and then she will come out with a song that, while I don't usually like the melody or the, the, the actual like music, her lyrics just like hit. And I've watched like, I've watched people since like 16, like I've watched some people that literally I was in high school with that have like grown with her and literally every album that comes out, some song and some lyrics from her song seem to just like match perfectly onto their life at that stage. It's almost as if Taylor Swift is kind of like this icon that's sort of living publicly the life of so many of my friends. And I've seen many people talk about that. Um, and so what I decided to do is actually pull up one of these songs that is now the top song on her Spotify. This is like the most famous song of all of her songs going around right now. And I want to read you the lyrics of this song. And I want to let this kind of be an inviting space where you can kind of see where the headspace of people in her age group are right now. This is from her song called Antihero. I have this thing where I get older, but just never wiser. Midnights become my afternoons. When my depression works the graveyard shift, all of the people I've ghosted stand there in the room. I should not be left to my own devices. They come with prices and vices. I end up in crisis, tale as old as time. I wake up screaming from dreaming. One day I'll watch as you're leaving. Because you got tired of my scheming for the last time. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. At tea time, everybody agrees. I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. It must be exhausting, always rooting for the anti-hero. What's in those lyrics, and what I think so many of our people in our culture today are feeling, is self-loathing. A sense that we are the anti-hero in this story called life. That we're the character that messes everything up and our life is just going to end in destruction. That's what she's feeling, and that's what she wrote this entire song about, that she is an anti-hero, someone that's not going to get a happily ever after, but someone that's consistently ruining her shot at a happily ever after. And as I've thought about that, and I look at our culture around us, it just becomes more and more apparent to me that we internalize that, and we try to fix it through different things. We try to be able to come up with solutions to be able to manage the fact that we feel like the anti-hero in our culture. And one of the ways that I've seen us do this, one of the primary ways that I've seen us doing this is through activism, actually. Because it's so easy to feel like you're a hero if you 
le- uh, latch yourself on to a cause. If you latch yourself on to an idea that's out there in the world, if you latch yourself on to an idea of how to make the world a better place, then you will in- internally feel way better about yourself. And this doesn't just go for the secular world. We can talk about that. But this also goes for the Christian world, too. In churches, I've seen many people latch on to theologies, to doctrines, for this effect. Is that they find one truth in Scripture, and they latch on to it, and then that becomes the driving force of what's going to fix the world. And they preach on that topic alone for their entire life, because what they're really missing is they feel bad internally in themselves. They feel like, ultimately, they're worthless. And so what they do is they look to Scripture as an ideology and framework for able to fix the world. And if I push and fight for that ideology, if I fight for that, then maybe, just maybe, people will love me. Maybe God will love me. That's really the drive there. In the secular world, it's the same thing. People have a lot of passions about the environment right now, and I think those are good. I think those are healthy. But at the same time, there is this push that if you don't support those things, then you're worthless. If you're not about those things, then you're awful. You're unlovable. And how dare you throw that trash away in a landfill? And I'm not saying that's not something we need to think about. But what I'm saying is that there is inherent in our secular, secular culture this negativity, this detrimental way of thinking about that kind of stuff to the point that it says you must do this or you're unloved. And so those are the two voices going on, both in the Christian world and in the secular world. And I just picked two issues. Like We could go on for days on different issues on those things. And everywhere it seems like the, the, the voice in the world that's saying, both in Christian uh, spaces and in secular spaces, is that if you don't do X, you are not loved. If you don't fight for X, you are not loved. If you don't believe in X, you are not loved. And that's the thing that I want to really challenge you tonight with that I really want you to say and believe is different than that voice. And so, I know that's a lot of setup before we get to scripture, but I wanted that context before we get to our scripture verse. The scripture verse for tonight is one a lot of you might know. It's the scripture verse, John three sixteen. Most of you probably know it, but I'll go ahead and read it nonetheless. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I was uh, listening to a sermon two weeks ago at um, Oak Lane Christian Church, which is a church I run sound for. And uh, the pastor was also preaching on this verse. And he mentioned something that struck me that I never thought about before. He said, John 3.16, as much as you've heard it, is also a Christmas verse. Like this is a Christmas verse. And I never thought about it that way, but he's very right. It says that God gave Jesus as a gift for us, and the gift that was given was on Christmas, right? Like, that's a Christmas verse. And it's something that, as I've been thinking about, we talk about all the time. It's the reason that we give gifts at Christmas. Not 
not the whole commercialization. I know that might be the reason now, but originally why we started giving gifts was not because of businesses trying to sell a bunch of things. The reason we gave gifts originally was because we knew that we had been given a gift. We had been given the greatest gift on earth, which was Jesus. And this is the verse that shows this. And I want you to focus on what the verse says. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? Here's the difference. Most of the time you'll walk in a church and they will preach that you aren't loved until Jesus dies on the cross for your sins. That's when you're loved, after that happens. But that's not true. That's not what this verse says, is it? It says he loved the world that he gave his only son. There's love already there existing before Jesus' death on the cross. There's love already waiting for you before he dies on the cross. And that's the power of this verse. That's what's different than the voice that we're hearing internally. That's what's different. The, the voice that we're hearing internally says you have to do something to be loved. You have to do an action that benefits the world in some way. You have to be a certain way. You have to act a certain way. And if you act that way, then you will be loved. Then you will be accepted. Then you will be able to claim the status beloved. But that's not what this verse says. This verse says God loved the world and he gave his only son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And as I've thought about that, as I've meditated on that verse, the more and more I'm wowed because, you know, we're, there's an, there's an idea that comes up a lot in the scriptures. It talks about how in most of our life, the world does not operate this way. The world operates by you are loved if you're a good person. And maybe someone will die for you if you're a good person. But when you're someone that's not good, when you're someone that doesn't measure up, when you're someone that's hard to get along with, when you're someone that's maybe even an enemy to someone else, love is really hard to come by in our world in those situations. It's really hard to love your enemies, right? All of us know this. Like, pick out whoever you would say is your closest enemy and ask yourself, how easy is it to love them? And that's the thing, is it doesn't seem like it's difficult for God to love us. It seems as if God, in fact, is overjoyed by the fact that he's giving his son to fix all of this. It does, it's not as if God loves us after the cross. It's that he loves us so much that he gave us his son. And that's just so powerful to me. It's, it's the point of the whole story that I think we don't emphasize. The fact is that Christmas is not about a baby lying in a manger that one day will die on the cross, and that's the important thing. The important thing is that we even got a child in a manger in the first place. Right? And here's what's even crazier is not only is that child in a manger a gift from God, it's also, strangely, God. It's himself. It's him stepping into the mess of our life. 
Some of you know that like sometimes I have, to, I have a tendency to be a little critical of like TV shows and things like that. And I have had, on occasion, been somewhat critical of the TV show Chosen. But I love this fact that they bring up in the show time and time again. They bring up the fact that Jesus is very human. They bring up the fact that he is God, but he strips down. They're really meditating on a passage in Philippians that says Jesus humbled himself to the point that he almost let go of his divinity of sorts. It's a really crazy verse, and there have been multiple theological uh, papers that have been written about it. But it sort of implies that Jesus steps away from that throne of God and comes down and lives as a human, as a baby, and has to undergo physical pain for the first time, emotional pain for the first time, has to undergo the normal things that we go through every day with just like how our body acts and functions and gets tired. One of my favorite episodes of The Chosen is in season two, where they take a whole episode to just show him healing person after person after person. And the disciples are just like completely like confused by like how many people he's healing and like how is he still going. And the end of the episode ends with him in exhausted, just like physically exhausted. And he gets taken care of by Mary and he, he just goes to bed because he's so tired from healing people all day. And it's one of the things that I think is really important that they're bringing up is the fact that like the gift we've been given was a very human thing that we were given, a very, a thing that required God to have to step down from his role and have to live as a human, you know? And that's to me, is like the biggest sacrifice, even before we get to the cross, right? Like, there, that comes, and that is huge sacrifice. And I don't know, honestly, which is higher in my eyes. But the sacrifice of stepping down from the throne room of God to have to live among us for 33 years, like, that's a gift. That's a powerful Christmas gift. And for me, the point of that is, once again, he loved the world. He loved you. You, sitting right here in these seats. He loved you. That was how much he loved you. He was willing to give up a lot of the powers of his divinity, a lot of the ways that he saw the world. I, I, I honestly don't know what he gave up because I'll never, maybe I'll know one day, but like I don't know. That Philippians 2 verse has always been crazy to me. And it's that giving up, that sacrifice, that I think should mean something to us when we say the words, God loves you. But there's another verse, too, that I think really matters to this as well. This is a, a verse in Romans chapter 5. Um, and in Romans chapter 5, he's just finished from chapters 1 through 4 laying out the beauty of how... Um, now Gentiles and Jews are now both able to take part in communion with one another and both able to be Christians. And it's not just a Jewish faith anymore. It's a, both a Jewish and a Gentile faith. So after he finishes all of that, he starts chapter 5 now with this big therefore about, since I've already talked about all that, here's what's going on in chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through our faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. 
and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The part I want to focus on is that last part, the part about suffering, the part about hope and not being put to shame. And what's the thing that doesn't put us to shame? By the way, I should backtrack a little bit and kind of explain what this phrase, don't put us to shame, is all about. In the Old Testament, in the Psalms, this is a phrase that comes up time and time again in the Psalms. Do not put us to shame. And any time in the Psalms that it comes up, it's the psalmist saying, I hope in you, God. I hope that things will come true. I hope that this thing will happen. I hope that you will come through. I hope that the Messiah will come. I hope that you will save us all from our sins. I hope, I hope, I hope. But many of the Psalms will say this phrase, don't put me to shame. And the reason they say this is because there is still a little bit of doubt. A little bit of doubt in them that God won't follow through. And this line, don't put me to shame, is a line that in the psalmists allows them to tell God, look, I'm hoping in you right now, God. Like, I'm relying on you. I'm putting myself last. I'm letting you take control of this. Don't put me to shame. Don't make me the laughing stock of everyone around me because I've put my hope in you. Right? So that's the context of what that phrase means, don't put us to shame. In this verse, what's powerfully evident here is that he's now, Paul now, sees that phrase as no longer a thing you have to worry about, something you don't have to doubt as much in. And the reason he thinks you don't have to doubt so much in it is because now God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And what that means, basically, is that we have access now to something that the Old Testament writers and the psalmists didn't have. We have access to something called the Holy Spirit. You know me, I'm always big on the Holy Spirit. You're always going to hear me preach about the Holy Spirit. That's like the thing that I try and make sure is always in a sermon. <laughs> and the reason is, is because I really believe that the New Testament harps on the Holy Spirit. And I want to try and do that as well. The Holy Spirit, in this case, is the source of feeling loved. That's what he says. God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So, going back all the way to what I opened with, this question that I had, does God love me? I was hearing from the pulpit. I was hearing from all these Christians around me. Does God love me? Yes, they would say. But did I feel it? No, not all the time. And what it took me a very long time to realize was that I was missing a key component to this whole thing, which was the Holy Spirit. I was missing the fact that the Holy Spirit is the one that pours love into my heart. And it's not through community groups. It's not through the things we do that we receive this love. It's through the Holy Spirit. And if you don't feel love tonight, that's the first place I point you to is the Holy Spirit. And there's a whole way of thinking about it that 
might sound like I'm saying, oh, you don't have the Holy Spirit within you, and that's not what I'm saying. I do believe that you can quench the Holy Spirit. I believe that you can have the Holy Spirit but never listen to him. I believe that you can have him and be listening to so many other voices other than him that the voice of love just never comes through. But I do think that part of our growth as Christians is that we got to sit with ourselves, usually in solitude. This is the only way I've found to do it, is sit with ourselves in solitude and listen to that voice that's in you. That's the voice of love. The voice that gives you that power and sense that you are beloved, that you are loved. And if you do that, if you really take the time, it's not going to happen overnight. I tell you that all the time. you got to spend years in solitude and meditations, really, really listening to that voice and tuning out all the other voices, all the anxiety voices, all of the voices of fear, of desperation, of feeling like you have to prove yourself, to prove your worth to people. You have to turn all of those voices down, and that's not going to happen overnight. You've got to really work at that, and that's only going to happen if you're not running around all the time, if you're not busy all the time. The only way you're going to be able to really listen to the Holy Spirit speak into your life and speak the words of love in your life is if you take some time and just rest. Sit still and listen to the voice of love that's in you. Otherwise, this verse doesn't mean anything. You know, if you don't do that, you know, then this verse is just there that Paul said 2,000 years ago. But I'm telling you right here, this is what this means to me. It's, it's been poured out through the Holy Spirit, and you have to access it. You can't just live your life normally without some type of action on your part that's got to embrace it. And that's the thing. That's all I think you have to do. I think that's the big point of Christianity in general, is there's one action you have to do, one action to get love. It's not be popular. It's not be pretty. It's not be successful. It's not be significant. It's not be intelligent. It's not be loyal. It's not be the person that's never rejected. And it's not be the peacemaker. What it is, simply put, is accepting the straight fact that you are beloved. Accepting that voice within yourself, the Holy Spirit, that says you are loved. That's a message to everyone in this room that's a Christian. If you're not a Christian, then I would invite you to invite that Holy Spirit into you. Invite that voice of love into you. I think one of the most powerful things in my life has been when I put aside all of the desires for love from other people and rest solely in my desire for God. And what I mean by that is that if you go your whole life looking for community, looking for love in people, looking for love and success, looking for love in this world, looking for love as an activist that's fighting for causes that you believe in, if you go your whole life fighting for that as love, if, that's, if your whole drive underneath, the reason you're doing that is because you want love, that you need love, if you're fighting for truth and theology and doctrines only because you're looking for love because you don't have it and you don't know how to get it, if that's your motivation, if that's your core 
reason why you're doing all this stuff, then I honestly think that you won't actually do those things well. I don't think you'll be successful at those things. There's a quote by Thomas Merton that is one of the most profound spiritual guides in my life, and he writes this very bracing statement that I want you guys to wrestle with. He says, He who attempts to act and do things for others or for the world without deepening his own self-understanding, freedom, integrity, and capacity to love will not have anything to give others. He will communicate to them nothing but the contagion of his own obsessions, his own aggressiveness, his ego-centered ambitions, his doctrinaire prejudices and ideas. That's a fancy way of saying, if you don't figure out that you're loved and you go about trying to earn love through causes, through activism, through fighting for theologies, if you go through life doing that, and don't have an inner sense of love from the Father, from the Son, from the Holy Spirit, if you go about doing those things, you're really just an egomaniac. You need the love of God within you as the reason to fund every part of what you do forward, is his point. And that's really, really hard to hear. I still sometimes wrestle with that, because I'm not perfect at that. I'm not sitting here saying that I've got that figured out. Most of the time, I still go through life wanting others to validate what I do. I want others to say, you're doing a great job at this. I want them to be proud of me. I want them to give me these affirmations of love on me so that I can feel loved. And the one thing that I keep coming back to with that quote is that that's not where my source of love comes from. My source of love does not come from people. It comes from the Holy Spirit, from this voice inside of me. It's fueling the fact that I belong with God. That he loved me even before I was a Christian. That he loved me so much that he gave his son as a child on Christmas. If I can leave you with anything tonight, I want you to ask that in yourself. Do you feel loved by God? Do you feel that voice within you? The voice of the Holy Spirit saying, I am the spirit of Jesus. I am the spirit of the one that was sent 2,000 years ago, given because the Father loved you. Do you feel that? Do you listen to that? And is that your driving force through life? Is that the reason that you fight for what you believe in? Is that the reason that you hold to what you believe in? Is that the reason that you do the things you do for other people, the kind things that you do for other people? Or is the reason you're doing all that stuff because you don't feel loved and you know if you do those things, maybe you'll get some love from a person that smiles because you did a kind thing. Maybe you'll get some love from someone that's like, good job for fighting for that belief. Maybe you'll get some love being a part of a community because you're friends with them, and now you're talking and laughing, and it feels good being a part of a community. If those are the reasons, then I want you to reconsider. I want you to really think about the fact that the source of your love is the Holy Spirit within you, and that from the Holy Spirit, you then can go out and love everyone else, and you can fill everyone else up with the love that's from the Holy Spirit. And then you won't be people that are black holes, 
that are people that are sucking the love out of each other, that are using each other for love. Instead, you'll be fully filled by the Holy Spirit with love. And you will take that love and you will go out and you will give it freely to other people because you have more than enough. That's what I call you guys tonight. I call you to meditate on that and I really hope that it means something dear to you because it does to me. And one of the most profound things I can think of is just the simple phrase that God loved you before the world began. That's in Ephesians 1. You can go read it in Ephesians 1. Let's go ahead and pray.